Aloha, everybody. Welcome back to the Everyday Hope Beachcast. One more episode of me gloating from the beach, but look, don't worry. It'll all be back to normal by the next episode. All right. Now, last week we talked about Chapter 6, but you got to remember that Chapter 6 doesn't exist in a bubble. It fits into the flow of the book of Revelation, right? In chapter 4, John painted a wonderful picture of worship in heaven. Every creature is seen worshiping the one seated on the throne. But in chapter 5, our attention shifts to a scroll in God's right hand and to the need to have that scroll opened and revealed. But John is sad in this scene because no one is found who is worthy to open the scroll. But suddenly, a lamb appears who is obviously Jesus and is the only being worthy to open the scroll. And we understand the scroll to be the scroll of destiny, heaven's view of human history, which includes the evils that people do and God's plan for the redemption of those who have died for the gospel and the advent of the day of the Lord. But chapter six ends sort of mid vision. It describes the opening of six of the seven seals on the scroll, but never gets to the seventh seal. In fact, it doesn't actually complete the sixth seal. The day of the Lord unfolds in terrifying chaos, but we don't see what happens to us, to God's people. Thankfully, that's the subject of chapter 7. Now, some folks read chapter 7 as an interlude, like an intermission or a parenthetical insert explaining something about the rapture and the tribulation. I don't agree with that assessment, and I think part of the problem is people tend to read this with the chapter break in the middle. Remember that those chapter breaks weren't in the original text. For the New Testament, this was a process that happened in stages between the 13th and early 16th centuries. Without them, we'd see how chapter 7 flows naturally from the end of chapter 6. Now, there are a few hotly debated issues in chapter 7, and there are some popular ideas about those issues that could affect our understanding of this chapter. So, let's discuss these issues before we go any further. There are three issues we need to talk about. The 144,000, the multitude clothed in white, and what does it mean to be sealed? So let's start with the 144,000, which are described in Revelation 7, verses 4 to 8. And I'm not going to read those verses for you, but obviously there's a lot of debate over who those 144,000 are. And how we interpret that question will have a bearing on how we interpret the entire vision of the opening of the seals. Now, dispensational interpreters believe that this is a literal number of Jews who will be saved out of the Great Tribulation, the seven horrible years of turmoil that happen after the rapture but before Christ's second coming. Now, I know what you're thinking. We haven't read anything in the text yet about Christ's second coming or the rapture of the church or a seven-year period of tribulation. But forget that for a second. Let's just deal with the question at hand. Does this passage refer to a literal 144,000 ethnic Jews? Hebrew people who will be saved during that future end time. I won't keep you in suspense, but I'll give you the short answer, since most of you already know what I'm going to say anyway. Is this a literal 144,000? No. And I believe that for four reasons. The first reason is the number 144,000 itself. I mean, we're only in chapter 7, but we've already learned a lot about the importance and symbolism of numbers in Hebrew writings, especially apocalyptic writings. 3, 4, 7, 10, 12, these are highly symbolic numbers, and every time we've seen one, it's been obviously symbolic. So how can we ignore the obvious symbolism of the number 144,000? It's the square of 12 multiplied by the square of 10. 12 is a hugely symbolic number, 
there were 12 sons of Jacob and 12 tribes of Israel and 12 disciples. The symbolism of the number 12 is intensified when it's squared, especially in light of the previously introduced image of the inclusion of both testaments, the 12 tribes and the 12 disciples. 1,000 is also highly symbolic as the square of 10, and combining these things creates a threefold way of representing perfect completeness in the context of the inclusion of God's people from both covenants. So the symbolism cannot be ignored. The second issue is a biggie. It's the list of the 12 tribes in this passage. The list is wrong. Now, I can't put up a PowerPoint slide for you, so we're going to have to talk through this, but it's pretty simple once you see it. So, Revelation 7, 4 through 8 lists 12,000 people sealed from, and I'm quoting, each tribe of Israel, right? And the 12 so-called tribes listed here are Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. Now, if you've studied the Old Testament in any detail, you already see the problem. This is a very strange list, and that strangeness stands out in comparison to two other lists. Let me explain. Jacob, who was renamed to Israel, had 12 sons, and most people think that those 12 sons became the heads and the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. The problem is that two of his sons are not listed in the 12 tribes. Levi, they were set apart as the priests of Israel, and Joseph, who was honored by having two tribes named after his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. So there's no tribe of Joseph. So the list of Jacob's sons in birth order is Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. And the list of the 12 tribes of Israel, this is from Numbers 2, is Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Reuben, Simeon, Gad, Ephraim, Manasseh, Benjamin, Dan, Asher, and Naphtali. Now, here's the problem. For the list in Revelation 7 to make sense as a literal list, it would have to match one of these two lists, but it, it doesn't. When you compare it to the list of Jacob's sons, you see that Manasseh is listed, but Dan is not, and Manasseh was not a son of Jacob. And when you compare it to the list of the 12 tribes, you find that Levi and Joseph are both listed, but Dan and Ephraim are not. Which means that, compared to the 12 tribes from Numbers 2, this is not the right list. And compared to the list of Jacob's sons, this is also not the right list. So the vision John receives is not a vision of the 12 tribes of Israel, and is not the vision of the 12 sons of Jacob. So what is it? Well, whatever the seer has shown, it's not either of those things, so I'm inclined to think it's not meant literally. So why is the list the way it is? Well, frankly, I'm not sure, and there's no real consensus on this issue. There are some theories. Some people believe there was a copy error from the original text. They believe that this was originally the list of Jacob's 12 sons, and Dan was written sloppily and confused as an abbreviated form of Manasseh, man, M-A-N. Copyists wrote out the full name of Manasseh, hence the error on the list. The problem is, in Koine Greek, the delta, the D letter, and the mu, the M letter, don't look very much alike at all, and it's a stretch to think they'd confuse one for the other. And the same is true in Hebrew. It would be very hard to confuse those two letters. Now, in ancient Aramaic, the equivalent of the M and the D 
do look a little alike, and I guess it'd be possible to confuse them, but there's just no evidence that this document was written in Aramaic originally. So it's, it's highly unlikely. Others believe that Dan is absent on purpose for what they did in Judges. They were very bad. And they were replaced intentionally by one of Joseph's sons, Manasseh, to keep the number at 12. The reason Manasseh is chosen instead of Ephraim, Joseph's other son, is because Ephraim was also bad. Now, I don't think this is true because, well, look, it's just speculation intended to justify a predefined answer to a question. And I think that's a bad way to interpret any text. So I'm going to go with, I don't know, but I don't think we can take this list literally. That's the second issue. The third issue is that 10 of the 12 tribes were wiped out during the Assyrian conquest in the 8th and 7th centuries BC. And the last two tribes were essentially wiped out during the destruction of Jerusalem and the expulsion of the Jews in 70 AD. Basically, the individual identities of the 12 tribes were sort of wiped out. And the Jews in exile became a single ethnic identity. If this document was indeed written late in the first century, they'd know that already. And finally, the New Testament is clear that Israel as the people of God was transformed from an ethnic identity to a faith identity with the first advent of Christ. Galatians 6 speaks of the Israel of God, the true people of God, which includes all the faithful, Jew and Gentile. We also know from Galatians 3 that there is neither Jew nor Greek, but all are made one. And we know from Ephesians 2 that the middle wall of separation has been broken down and the Gentile, who was far off, has been brought close. And we know from Romans 11 that the wild olive shoot of the Gentiles has been grafted onto the tree in the place of branches that have been lost. There's just too much evidence that the true Israel of God is now all believers. And a New Testament writer and prophet like John would definitely have understood that. So these are four good reasons to reject the notion that the 144,000 refers to a literal number of ethnic Jews saved at a future time of tribulation that has not yet been discussed after a future rapture that has not been mentioned. It's much more likely that the number represents the complete and full number of all those who are preserved from the day of the Lord at the end times, since the four angels are instructed to hold back the destruction until these are sealed. More on that later. Okay, that brings us to the second group pictured in chapter 7, the multitude clothed in white. Let me read verses 9 to 10. After this I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white, with palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne, and to the Lamb. Well, we don't have to guess who they are, because the angels tell John in the vision, he says, These are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God and worship him day and night within his temple, and the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. They will hunger no more and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them nor any scorching heat, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. All those who have died for Christ are before the throne, clothed in righteousness, and all of their suffering and want has been erased. These people sound like they are in perfect contentment, and they spend their time joyously worshiping God around his throne. What a great message of hope for all those still facing the tough times of life. Remember I said that chapter 6 flowed naturally into chapter 7? Well, I said that because chapter 6 ends with a question that is answered in chapter 7. 
When the sixth seal is opened and the great day of the Lord has come, this question rises up from the earth in Revelation 6.17. The great day of the Lord has come. Who is able to stand? In this vision in chapter 7, we get a wonderful answer. All those who have been sealed, those who have already died, and those who are still here, that's who can stand. God's people will be able to stand on that day. Wow. All right. So we've talked about the 144,000, those believers who are alive at the coming of the day of the Lord and who are sealed against that day. And the multitude clothed in white who have already died in the Lord and are already worshiping around the throne and given complete relief from the trials of this life. The last thing we need to do is discuss what it means to be sealed. Well, very simply, when something is sealed, it is assured against alteration. Think about the scroll. It is sealed with seven seals. And we talked about this as part of a first century encryption scheme, right? Seals on a document ensure that the content's not altered, that what's been written is assured. In terms of God's people, we see that what God has determined regarding his people shall not be altered. They are sealed against that day so that nothing that occurs, not even the terrible chaos of the day of the Lord, shall alter their destiny, the destiny God has marked them out for. Think back to the message to the church at Philadelphia. Believers are promised that they will have God's name, Jesus' name, and the name of the new Jerusalem written on them. They are assured that they are God's very possession and that they possess citizenship in the new city that God will bring about at the end of time. It's a seal. And here in chapter 7, we see the angels at the four corners of the world commanded to hold back the devastation described in the sixth seal until the full and complete number of Israel, the true believers, are sealed so that their destiny in God is assured against the impending destruction. What an amazing message for all of us. We are sealed by God so that what he has promised us shall come to pass, and we shall not be destroyed by the chaos of the end times or any chaos that comes before then for that matter. So, what does this all mean for us? Well, we've covered the trivia, but we're really after more than that, aren't we? We're really trying to hear the message of God, uh, a message for us, a message that informs the way we think and act and live our lives day to day. And that's the whole point, right? Scripture's not really just about trivia or knowing better answers for your Sunday school teacher. It's about changing the way we live. So, what does this all mean for us? Well, I think we can take three very important things away from chapter 7. First, this passage tells us unequivocally that we can have confident hope for our loved ones who have died in Christ. I don't know how many times I've been asked by those who have lost loved ones, where are they and what are they experiencing? And it's, it's a natural question. When someone we care about has passed, it'd be nice if we could have some idea of, of where they are and what they're going through. When we read Revelation 7, we get a picture of a multitude of believers clothed in white, worshiping around the throne. This great image tells me that the ones I loved that died in Christ are joyfully worshiping God before his throne. But more than that, we're told outright that these folks are sheltered by the Lord. They have no more thirst or hunger, and no longer suffer under the scorching heat of the sun. They are led to springs of water by the good shepherd, the lamb himself, as God wipes away every tear from their eyes. And remember, this is not just a promise. John sees this happening in his vision of heaven. So this is something we can take right to the bank. Second, we can have confident hope in our own futures. I believe every true believer is sealed against the day of the Lord. The chaos and turmoil of the eruption of nature on that day frightens even the bravest folks into the hills. Who can stand? Well, we have that answer. We can. 
We are sealed against that day. And the destiny the Lord has fulfilled for us is assured. We don't have to listen to those false prophets who proclaim to us that God hates us because we haven't lived up to some man-made standard born from poor scholarship and a misunderstanding of who God is. We don't have to listen to these legalists and haters who proclaim hell and damnation to us. If you believe in Jesus Christ, that he is God's son and died for your sins and rose from the grave on the third day and have accepted him as Lord, and if you do this continually and sincerely, even if you're not perfect, Revelation 7 shows us that we are assured our place in heaven and that the awesome day of the Lord will not destroy us, but will usher in the new life that God has promised. Therefore, we should have no fear of the day of the Lord, but we should anxiously anticipate and even hasten it. Come, Lord Jesus, we can cry with confident anticipation. You know, I think sometimes people do evangelism out of some legalistic need to accomplish this as one of their spiritual tasks. You know what I mean? You pray the prayer, you get baptized, go to church, help old ladies cross the street, lead someone to Christ, as if it's something we need to accomplish in order to be good Christians. But think about it. Our future is assured. Our past is assured. Our present is assured. In chapter 7, we learn that our entire lives are accounted for by the Ancient of Days, the Creator, and the Lamb who is worthy has fulfilled every promise. And since our entire lives are assured, past, present, and future, we can do everything we do, not out of desperation or legalism, but out of the joy that fills a heart that has nothing left to worry about. In that sense, chapter 7 is the chapter of freedom. We are free from the worry about our past, present, and future because we are sealed for all time as God's own possession, made good by the Lamb who is worthy. We are free. We are free to live. We are free to obey Him. And we are free to love our neighbor. And we are free to proclaim the good news to those who need to hear it. So, in the name of the Lamb who is worthy, I proclaim this freedom to you. Be free because He's made you free. Amen? All right. I'm going to pray for you right now. And as always, please be safe. Keep your eyes on what you're doing. And just let your hearts pray with me right now. Father, we praise you for the freedom and assurance you show us in chapter 7. We thank you that the Lamb who is worthy has sealed us against the chaos of this world. Even when we don't understand life, we know that you are God and you have sealed us. And Lord, we want to lift up some folks who are in chaos right now. Joanne, Alicia, Lakia, Michael, so many others who need a reminder that you are God. Lord, we pray that you would be with us all. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, that'll do it. Back to the Everyday Hope podcast in the next episode. Be leaving the beach. I'm a little sad about it, but I will talk to you then. Peace.